our series, Jesus and Impossible Cases, and we're going to do so from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. If you're in need of a Bible this morning in the pew right in front of you, uh, you'll find a Bible, and in the front of the Bible, you'll find an index, and in the index, you'll find the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 6. Our bread and butter on Sunday mornings as a congregation here uh, is to move right through books of the Bible. Semi-regularly, we take a pause on that, and we do a series like we'll do next week. Um, But as we move through books of the Bible, you've probably noticed we we like to break it down into mini-series, if you will. Uh, And the reason I like to do that, the reason why I could just say, yeah, we're traveling through the Gospel of Mark and we could just do that the whole time. The reason why I break it down is because this rhythm of opening our Bibles, reading six verses, closing it for the week, and then opening and reading the next six, we start to lose the continuity. We start to lose the context that goes along with the way the books were actually written. The majority of the books in the Bible were were written to be read in their total, okay? Uh, in their entirety. Uh, In fact, if you look closely at the New Testament letters, you'll see that Paul expected the entirety of those letters, be it the 16 chapters of Romans or the four chapters of Colossians, to be read aloud in a single setting for the entire church, okay? And so um, that especially plays out this morning because it's very easy to miss the punchline that is this last section. Mark has intentionally laid out things that Jesus has done, three of them in a row that, uh, that we categorize as being impossible, uh, as being shock and awe, as being amazing. Uh, and so the first thing is, is he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, as we saw in chapter five, uh, excuse me, all the way back in chapter four. Along with a bunch of rugged fishermen, there was a storm so serious that they wake Jesus up and say, grab a bucket, we're going under. And Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief, and then he rebukes the storm, and it goes completely calm instantaneously. The second thing we see is as Jesus ministers to a man who has been written off by society as being just too problematic. Uh, Someone who is living in a cemetery, constantly doing violence to himself and to others, uh, demonically possessed to the nth degree, and the the community comes out and finds him after an encounter with Jesus, just sitting calmly next to Jesus, and that's so disturbing to them that they're afraid and they ask Jesus to leave, okay? Impossible. Uh, And then we see as Jesus heals a woman whose medical condition, uh, a hemorrhaging of blood has been going on for 12 years, doctors can't help, Uh, history tells her uh, that this is going to be the always because it's always been Jesus heals her, and then he raises a little girl from the dead. Impossible, okay? In every single case, we see people respond with awe and wonder and amazement, and now we get to chapter 6, and after this roster of impossible events, Jesus comes home to his hometown, the city of Nazareth where he grew up. And so read with me here in chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. 
And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your favor this morning, that you would graciously bestow upon us understanding of your word, that you would instruct us in your truth and in your identity this morning. And I pray, Lord, as I know, according to your word, that when we open your word, your word opens us, that it cuts between the bone and the marrow, between soul and spirit. It subjects us to the light of truth, God. I, we open ourselves to that as well, Lord. We, we ask that you would search our hearts this morning, um, that you would work in us through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you get it? Do you get the punchline? Do you see how profound this story is in the context of the last three major happenings? Do you see how Jesus does the impossible time after time and he comes home and he does very little. Do you see how every time Jesus does marvelous things and the people are amazed, and here, it's Jesus who's amazed. It's Jesus who is shocked, not because of the doings of others, not because of miracles at other people's hands, but because of their unbelief. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus only marvels once. Even that, when you understand who Mark believes Jesus to be, God incarnate, the very Son of God, the omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent God, the fact that he marvels at all is surprising, isn't it? What makes God's jaw drop? It's a silly thing to ask, right? It's, it's like those questions that sometimes college kids ask that they think are so smart. Can God make a rock so big even he can't lift it, right? What shocks God? What, what does that even mean? And yet here, Jesus marvels. But it's not at the beauty of creation. It's not at some sort of accomplishment of humankind. What shocks Jesus here is the unbelief of his neighbors and his family in his hometown. We've seen Jesus do the impossible, but this morning we talk about what Jesus can't do. Now let's look at the context here again in chapter 6 verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. That last statement might seem a little bit trite, might seem a little bit obvious at this point. Mark is pointing that out though because it changes the way Jesus arrives home. Okay? Because he comes with an entourage. Okay? Think what this is like if you grew up next door to Jesus. And Jesus comes home for a visit and he's got 12 plus, maybe even more, men with him who call him rabbi. Okay? This is a different arrival than if he was just coming home for dinner. 
he is uh, expressing an official status here as an itinerant rabbi who has taken on disciples. On top of that, he comes home with a reputation. Did you notice that? When they ask the questions, they're not just astonished by the teaching that he gives in their synagogue. He's astonished by the things they've heard have been done by his hands. Look there at the end of uh, verse 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? As we go on to read, those mighty works aren't being done in Nazareth, but his reputation has preceded him. They've been talking, you know, around the marketplace. Have you heard about Jesus, Joseph's son? Have you heard, about, heard the stories of the people raised from the dead and the blind who can see, of the masses that have been fed in the wilderness? What could it mean? Okay, that's what's going on here. And what's really interesting is every time we've seen Jesus arrive anywhere in the last few chapters, he's arrived and the crowds have preceded him, right? And so he gets on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. When he arrives at the other side, the crowd has actually sprinted the beach around the edge so that they can be there. When he got out of the boat just last week, Jairus and this woman with the flow of blood, they're right there, ready with needs and demands. Jesus pulls into Nazareth and nothing. No one's there to greet him. No one's there to meet him. In fact, it doesn't seem uh, that anything happens until the following Sabbath. And he's invited to teach in the synagogue, which is a standard practice for itinerant preachers. If you read the Gospels collectively, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it seems that Jesus taught at least twice in the city of Nazareth, here, as well as the one that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, which would have been earlier in Jesus' ministry. Um, And so here he speaks, and what we're given after that is the response. Okay. But I want you to notice the, the logical order here, okay? It starts over here. Jesus can do not much. Notice what it says again in verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. Okay, that's the conclusion. Preceding that in the chain of logic is clearly because of their unbelief. And preceding that unbelief is their familiarity with Jesus. Now, I want to work backwards. I want to move through this uh, backwards and move into that center Um, the familiarity, but notice again, it says that he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and he healed them, okay? And then it says he marveled because of their unbelief, and so there's a correlation between those two things, but we need to get this right, okay? What does it mean to say that there was something that Jesus couldn't do? It makes it sound, at first reading, uh, like, uh, like faith in and of itself, like a, uh, you know, an element on the periodic table is powerful. Like if you just have it, things happen, and if you don't have it, nothing happens. In fact, it almost makes it sound like God himself is limited by a lack of faith. Like he's a really fast car, but there's no gas. That's not the idea here. Remember, this is Jesus who raises the dead. How much do the dead believe in Jesus? That's not the issue, okay? To understand what's going on here, you have to understand uh, how it is that Jesus uh, goes about his ministry, which is that the miracles, 
the signs, the wonders, the healings, they all have an agenda. It's not just about the person being healed. We saw this last week. A woman comes up to Jesus. She knows if she can just get close enough to touch his garment, this hemorrhaging that's been going on for 12 years will be healed. She knows it will happen. She believes. And so she does it quietly and silently. She sneaks up, she touches, and she plans on sneaking out. And Jesus calls her out in front of the crowds, makes her identify herself, stand up publicly. Why? As we talked about last week, it's because Jesus doesn't want this woman just to be healed. She wants this woman to know who Jesus is. One of the primary words that's used throughout the Gospels for the works that Jesus did, it's often translated miracles, is simeon. It's the Greek word that means a sign, okay? Now, a sign tells you about something. That's what it's there for, right? Signs always have a trajectory. They have a purpose. They have something that they point beyond to. Jesus' miracles in his ministry were signs in the sense that they showed us who he was and what he was about, and they point ultimately and totally to himself. I'll give you another example. In the Gospel of John, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He crosses the Sea of Galilee, and the people meet him on the other side of the beach after being fed, and they say, do that again. Feed us again. You fed us yesterday, but the way stomachs work, we're hungry again today. Provide for us. And they even have biblical precedent. They say, Moses, he did this every day for 40 years, provided for us in the wilderness. Now it's your turn. And Jesus turns their attention and he says, this isn't about the filling of stomachs. Let me tell you that I am the bread of life. I am the sustenance you need. Okay? That's how the miracles that Jesus did were to work. He didn't just want them to be healed. He wanted them to know their healer. He didn't want them just to be provided for. He wanted them to know him as provider. He didn't just want to touch people's lives. He wanted to enter into a final and total relationship. He didn't want to just save them from demons. He wanted to save them fully and totally as their savior, okay? And so the problem here with unbelief is not because faith is like an element that when it doesn't exist, and I I thought through so many metaphors last night, I think this one gets a little bit closer. What happens uh, here is is like the way lightning works, right? Lightning won't strike something that's not grounded, if, if, in, if an object is floating and lightning strikes it, it's not dangerous. It won't do anything. It's the grounding that makes it dangerous, okay? Uh, it's, it's kind of a better way to think about it if you recognize what's missing here for this electrical impact of Jesus is the grounding of faith, okay? Maybe, okay? But what we need to understand here is that the problem Uh, is not that Jesus is somehow limited in his ability. It's a limitation on his mission. In fact, clearly what it says here when he could not do very much except heal a few people, it means they didn't come to him, right? It's very rare that we see Jesus just kicking down a door and saying, my spidey sense says there's someone here who's dying and then he touches them, right? How does it usually work? Need is presented to Jesus. Even on the one occasion where Jesus goes out of his way to heal a man at the pool of Bethesda, and he walks up to this guy who's laying next to a pool who wants to be healed. That's why he's at the pool, because it has a reputation uh, for being a place of healing. What does he ask him? Do you want to be made well? 
Isn't it a little obvious? Why am I here? Why do I have my friends lay me at this pool every day? He's presenting a point of contact. He's presenting a place for faith. But in Nazareth, nobody knocks on Jesus' door. In Nazareth, nobody calls out to him in the streets and says, Son of David, has mercy on me. In Nazareth, nobody comes to Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't do very much. Okay. Now we've got a balance here. What I'm suggesting to you is that a lack of faith doesn't weaken God, but it clearly keeps you from experiencing God's power. Do you see that? Okay. Now, the second thing I want to point out here is this word for unbelief. The problem here is not that their faith was small. When we read here, he marveled at their unbelief. The idea here is not that they only believed a little, but not enough to make things happen. If there's a criticism for us this morning, and this criticism is about unbelief, I am not talking to those of you who are struggling, those of you who are doubting. I'm not talking to those who, like the man who brings his demonically possessed and epileptic son to Jesus and says, your disciples couldn't heal him. Can you do anything about it? And he says, all things are possible to those who believe. And he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That posture is no limitation to Jesus. In fact, he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, one-tenth of a gram, you can move mountains. It's not about the amount. Okay? It's also, don't read here unbelief as a lack of, a belief, of belief. The problem here is not that there was no belief. It's that there is unbelief, okay? Here, here's the way I was thinking about this last night. Imagine a piece of sheet music. And imagine the, imagine the making of music, the playing of music, requires that sheet music to be filled. When Jesus marvels at their unbelief here, it's not a blank sheet of paper. It's a sheet entirely made up of rests. Right? You know how we denote arrest? We don't just leave it empty. You don't just put a note and then not put a note. This is an entire piece of sheet music full of rest. That's unbelief. That's why the Bible doesn't have a problem with doubt. If you're wrestling with your belief in God, struggling to know if he'll be there, read the Psalms. You're in good company. Habakkuk comes to God and he says, I can't understand how you could be who you say you are and how life could be like this. And God meets Habakkuk where he's at. We see the same thing with Job. Job wrestles with what he's experiencing in his life and who God is. He's experiencing doubt. But unbelief is different. Unbelief isn't struggling with a shaky hand to write the music. Unbelief is writing rest after rest after rest and cultivating silence. Unbelief has a tangibility to it. It's not an emptiness, it's a resistance. It's not a wall without a door because Jesus makes a way, it's a locked door. It's not an inability to grasp intellectually that this could be true. It's a resistant will that says, no, thank you. Now, that is the problem in Nazareth. Nobody comes because everybody's, uh, everybody's internal court has already adjourned on Jesus. 
They've already come to their sentence. He can do nothing for me. If you're a Christian this morning, it might be easy to distance yourself from this being a problem and say, listen, let me tell you about my neighbor. He is racked with unbelief. But you need to understand. First off, the author of Hebrews in chapter 3 warns us, Jesus' church, those who have received Jesus, trusted in him fully for their salvation, who come and gather on Sundays like we're doing today to learn who Jesus is, the author of Hebrews warns us about the danger of unbelief. Listen to what he says. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters, that's you and me, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I'll tell you something clear and obvious. If the Bible is true, and it truly gives a warning, then it's one we need to heed. Okay? You've heard me say this before about the way warnings work. The way warnings work is they only make sense if the thing it warns you about is actually dangerous. We never see signs that say danger puppies, okay? And then on top of that, it needs to be a near danger, okay? Putting a sign up outside that says, warning polar bears 2,000 miles that way is not a warning, okay? Imminent and close impending danger. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you're not human, and humans struggle with unbelief. Here it labels one of the primary reasons, the deceitfulness of sin. Okay. We harden ourselves towards the Lord because we soften ourselves to temptation. But we see another one in Jesus' ministry. And again, it's familiarity. The problem with these folks is not that they don't know enough about who Jesus is. It's that they know too much. They're too familiar. In fact, go back to Mark chapter 6 with me. Again, Jesus is here. No fanfare, no crowds, no ministry opportunities until he's teaching in the synagogue. And then his teaching they have to make a response to, as is always the case. When Jesus opens his mouth, he always draws a line in the sand. In fact, the last time he's come to the synagogue, he opens up the book of Isaiah, the daily reading in the Jewish scriptures for that synagogue, and he comes to the passage where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to set free the captive, to heal up the brokenhearted, to declare the acceptable day of the Lord's favor, and this is Jesus' entire sermon in summary form in Luke chapter 4. Today, the words I've just read have been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, this passage that we, was, that we just read that was written 700 years ago, it's about me, and it's happening right now. Line in the sand. Either he is or he isn't. So that happens again, but notice their response. Verse 2, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, here's something you probably don't spot in the English that's really strong in the Greek, okay? Uh, it's the uh, second person pronoun. That's not right. It's the third person pronoun, okay? It's you, 
Okay, it's this guy. Okay. Uh, the word here, I'll draw it out for you by rereading again. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the ministry mission, or excuse me, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The question is not, can miracles happen? The question is not, does wisdom exist? The question is him? Him? That's where they struggle. That's the problem. They cannot correlate in their minds the reputation that they've heard about Jesus' miracles, the experience that they've just had of him as a communicator, which they identify as being wise. Did you notice that? They don't say, this is crazy talk. It's profound. It's striking. He's overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. The problem is they cannot connect it with the Jesus they know. In fact, notice what they say next in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? Jesus was raised in the trade of uh, Joseph as a technon. Not just a carpenter, but a builder in rocks and wood and everything. This means that when Jesus was living in Nazareth before his ministry started, just a few years before this, he was walking into homes and building extra rooms. He was building kitchen tables. He was digging wells. Okay. And you can imagine in the middle of the day when the sun gets hot and he's working outside as the host family brings out a sandwich and Jesus sits on their porch and eats. On top of that, the path to rabbi involves education and the path to education, like today, involves a little bit of privilege. It involves wealth. It involves impressing the right people and being invited into the process. And Jesus is just a carpenter. He's just a blue-collar worker. His hands, the same ones that are going to be nail-scarred, are already calloused from day labor. They can't reconcile those two things. Notice the second thing they say. They say, isn't this the carpenter? And then next, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, here's the thing. In a Hebrew mindset... It's patrilineal. You trace your lineage and you identify yourself through the line of the father. Even if Joseph is dead at this point, and we're pretty sure that he is because he just doesn't exist in the gospels when Jesus is an adult. We see Mary a lot. We never see Joseph. Even if his father has passed, he would still be Joseph's son. But here he's the son of Mary. Okay. It may even be, and we see this even clearer in the Gospel of John, that this is a reputational slight about Jesus' origins, his illegitimate birth. Everyone knows he's the son of Mary because it's pretty easy to connect a child with the mother, right? You saw the birth happening. But, But the fatherhood, that's questionable. Well, I heard... I heard Mary was pregnant while Joseph and Mary were still engaged, right? It's very likely here that this isn't just a failure to address Jesus according to standard as the son of Joseph, but it's got a little bit of an edge on it. It's a criticism. The illegitimate guy? The bastard child? That guy? Okay. And then notice, not just son of Mary, but the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and all of his sisters, 
say, we know the whole family. This is part of our community. Side note, Nazareth at this day and time, maybe 500 people. It's not a big town. Okay. It's this familiarity, and it says that familiarity uh, brought them to the point that they took offense at him. I want to deal with this at two applicational levels. First is just the lowest and most obvious level. Okay. Here, they can't reconcile the Jesus they grew up with and the Jesus and his reputation, the Jesus that they know. And the thing is, we still say today, don't we, that familiarity breeds contempt. That's, that's what they're dealing with. It's, they, could have exp- they could have honored somebody who came from another community, who they didn't know the childhood of, who they didn't see running in the streets, who they didn't, like I said, feed while he was working on their cabinets. But this is too close. It's too near. It's too familiar. In fact, Jesus points out a proverb that he uses four different times in the Gospels. A prophet is without honor only in his own hood. It's when you come home that you're not seen for and respected. Uh, When I returned from attending Bible college in California, I had grown up in Yakima. I got saved in a small church in Yakima, and then I left for school. When I came back and settled over here, I got involved with a church that ultimately led to this church. While I was there, though, my old pastor, who had seen me become a Christian, was looking for someone to help start a new church in Ellensburg, and I loved Ellensburg. I spent a year there. My pastor here, Pastor Wayne, knew that, got a call from this pastor, uh, and he said, do you know anyone? And he said, yes, I do. I've got this kid, Justin Thomas. And my old pastor goes, Justin Thomas? You mean the one who... And he started to just let all the skeletons spill out of my closet. He remembered who I was, and that was a clear disqualification for me for ministry. Now, to be fair... This is very different than what we're talking about here, okay? Because I was a mess, okay? Uh, That's why that story is funny to me. I'm not offended by that. It's absolutely true. In fact, maybe some of you can relate. Sometimes I reconnect with somebody on Facebook, and what's the first thing they say? You're a pastor? You? That's one of the glories of the gospel. It does not apply to Jesus. Jesus lived an entire human life as a child without sin. He was perfect but he was poor. He was all too human. He was uneducated. Those were the problems. Here's the thing. We also are prone to limiting Jesus and experiencing unbelief because of familiarity. Maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church. Maybe you just got so used to seeing that emaciated Jesus hanging on a cross. Or the Jesus that's painted in pictures meek and mild and knocking on a door. Maybe you just got so used to Jesus off in the distance, Jesus associated as being an item of doctrine, something you adhered to. Maybe you're not a Christian, the Jesus you're familiar with is the one reflected in the faces of his followers, so-called. Cursing and full of vitriol, angry and protesting at funerals. And then you find needs in your own heart. And you go, him? That Jesus? Listen, you guys all know that I try and not be 
overly critical of our culture, and the main reason's an obvious one, it's because it's our culture, I'm included in it, okay? However, we should recognize that we have a standardized bias in Western culture against Christianity. We're open to all sorts of religions and philosophies and ideas, except for the one we're most familiar with. And I'm not saying that's a misunderstanding. A lot of times it's because we understand too well. We don't have to reconcile Buddhism and 19th century American slavery, right? Those things are real. But it does mean that we have a lodged in our hearts cultural bias against Christianity. We do, okay? But it's also true of us in the church. For many of us, even sitting here this morning, we now believe in a domesticated Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't look like the Jesus of the Gospels. A Jesus that we've edited down based on our own experience. And yes, we've heard stories of Jesus doing these things for others, but not for me. And again, I'm not talking to you, those of you who are praying and who are wrestling and who are awaiting God to show up in your life. I'm talking to those of you who have never asked. I'm talking to those of you who assume out the gate that there's nothing to be done here, so I have to fend for myself. Unbelief doesn't look like lots of prayer and disappointment and tears. Unbelief looks like no prayer. And my fear is for all of us, we are prone to this. We get comfortable with our Christianity. We codify what God will do or won't do, what is possible or isn't possible. We come to a place like the disciples in the storm where we go, actually, we're experts in these types of things and that type of stuff just doesn't happen. Remember, put it in the big picture here. This is Jesus who does the impossible, who controls the natural weather system, who delivers the most written off in society, who heals those who have been sick for their entire adult lives and raises the dead. This is the Jesus we're talking about. Is that the Jesus you believe in this morning? Unbelief doesn't limit God but it does limit your experience of him. It's funny, isn't it, looking at these citizens of Nazareth and going, okay, so they don't deny the evidence. They're not saying Jesus doesn't do miracles. They're not saying that his teaching is foolish. And then they just stop. They stop thinking entirely. They don't push any further. They don't feel the need to reconcile those facts at all. They just let it go. That's the danger for us this morning. The difference between doubt and unbelief is doubt cries out. Unbelief walks away. Sometimes unbelief just cries. Doubt cries out. Unbelief just cries. Okay. And here's the thing. Not only should we recognize unbelief as a sin... A sin because it involves the will. A sin because like in the Garden of Eden, it takes a stand against who God says he is and the evidence of who God is is displayed in creation and says, you won't really die. God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. Unbelief cultivates our own reality. It draws a box around the world and puts God on the outside. And again, I'm not talking about atheists. I'm talking about us. 
There's another way to think about this familiarity here. That's the low level. That's the place that it always touches. But there's also a theological counterpart of this. Okay. We call it the scandal of the particular. The God who made the world was born a baby. The God we pray to that would provide for our needs knew what it was like to be hungry. The God who is spirit and truth and intangible took on flesh. There's a scandal involved in Christianity. Keeping God ethereal and ephemeral and distance, that's fine. But God became man. Sweated and cried and suffered. That was the great stumbling block. Not just for Nazareth, but for the entire Roman world in the first century. Paul said, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's foolishness to the Jews and it's a stumbling block to the Greeks. Same word here, a scandal. It just couldn't be. We are interested in the God who shows up in power and in thunder. The God who's so distant that he's mysterious. But the God who's so knowable, he takes on flesh. He touches lepers and embraces single parents. Physically hungers and thirsts and is beat up and crucified and dies. That's a different thing. Why? Why did God take this route? Why does he go this way? Why deal with the scandal of particularity anyways? Why did Jesus have to be a human? Why did he have to be a man? Why did he have to be Jewish? Why in the first century? Why crucified on a cross? But the thing is, the reason why we need a God like this is the same reason why God took a path like this. Often we think our human condition problem is so limited that we need a limited God to fix it. Or he can just throw a heavenly switch. Or he can just grant a wish like a genie. But the human condition was so significantly flawed. Your rebellion goes so deep in your heart. Sin nature is such a serious issue in the human life. The only way that God could set things right. Why do I call it the only way? It's because that's what Jesus says. You remember as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But there isn't. There's one way. And that one way involves God entering into human history. Involves him taking on a body with all of its weaknesses. Involves him living the perfect life that none of us can live up to. And then dying the death that we all deserve as penalty for our sins in our place. If you want to know in one word what the gospel message is, it's substitution. If you want to know it in three, four words, Christ died for you. That's the gospel. But it's a stumbling block, and it always has been. And I would suggest to you the reason is not because God can't do incarnation. It's not because we can't wrap our head around the metaphysics of what it looks like for God to be a baby. It's because we won't, up to this, won't own up to the significance of our need. 
We want a God who's distant and we can impress. Honestly, I think some of us are scared of a God that would love us enough to take this path. Because if Jesus came a man, became a man just so he could do what you could not do and then freely died in your place, suffered on your behalf, and then freely gives you the rewards of that whole thing, then you have a truly and very God on your hands. What can't he ask in return? Nazareth is quite happy with Jesus the carpenter with Jesus, the son of Mary, with Jesus, who we grew up with. But that this is God in the flesh, it's not just that they can't believe it, it's that they're unwilling to. It's too significant. It's too much surrender. You've heard me say it before, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything you know is wrong. That's scary. Sometimes as Christians, we forget that. That's scary. To take Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, to take him as the exclusive uh, teacher of reality is a scary proposition. It is full and utter surrender. It is that familiarity, it is that question of him, it is that domestication that keeps Nazareth from really receiving from Jesus at this moment and recognizing that he is the God who loved them and who took on flesh to die for them. Unbelief is a sin, and here's the good news. That means that it can be forgiven. That means that it's one of the things that Jesus died for. That means that it's something that you can, in Jesus Christ, put off and by the power of the Holy Spirit, put on faith. But it is something that needs to be confessed. It is something that needs to be owned up to. And that's my great exhortation to you this morning because here's my hunch. For most of us, if not all of us, there's unbelief somewhere. There's places where it resides, and you can tell because you can run the logic. You say, I believe that Jesus is God, but is it reflected in the worry you have about your finances? You say, I believe that Jesus walked the earth and healed these people, but the things that you're struggling with, be them small sicknesses or large, have you even prayed about it? You say, I believe that Jesus can transform lives and even raise the spiritually dead unto life. But if you told your, everybody has one, that one friend who seems just impossible and out of reach, have you told him about Jesus? Unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. Jesus asked a scary question while he was on earth. When he said, he said, when the son of man returns, will he even find faith on the earth? The struggle is real. But so is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to collectively on all of our behalves just surrender our unbelief this morning. The doors that we have locked, the conclusions that we've already drawn, 
the places where we've edited who your word says you are because it's safer for us. We don't want a domesticated Jesus because that Jesus is imaginary. We want a real Jesus. We want to see you work. We want to see you move. We want to experience the reality of who you are. We want to give you the keys to our kingdom that opens every door, that plums every basement and checks every closet, that exposes to the light the things we keep in the darkness, including our unwillingness to believe and trust in your promises. One of the ways we grow as Christians is we grow in faith. And we, Lord, don't want to be a sheet full of music that's merely rest, Lord. We want a symphony composed on the page. We want to hear your beauty and other people around us to, to hear it as well and to recognize your presence, your goodness, and your invitation in Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are not yet Christian here, Lord, and I ask that you'd help them just to recognize their own bent towards the status quo and their beliefs, to recognize that it's totally appropriate to question Christianity as long as they question themselves as well, as long as they realize what's at stake and how much those things weigh on their lives. For all of us, God, I pray that we would be open to fresh insight to who you are, not a new revelation, but an encounter with the already given and perfect revelation in Jesus Christ and in your word. Remove any blinders, any blind spots, any place where we cover our eyes and say, I cannot see God because he's not there. Remove our hands this morning. Help us to see you afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.